Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. Thanks for listening. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, we are going to be talking about uh, some follow-up to the last conversation that we had a week or so ago about why you're going to do better on your race day than you might think that you are, Uh, accumulated fatigue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll get to that soon enough. Um, Hopefully, you've been uh, following the end of the Vuelta a España. Chris Froome ended up winning, um, as I was talking about him last time. It's the first time Abelian's won both the Tour and the Vuelta uh, since Bernard Hinault won both of them back in 1978. And by the way, that was back when the Vuelta was before the Tour. Uh, and now the Tour is in, in July and the Vuelta is in September. Um, it's the first time that uh, that any cyclist has won two Grand Tours in a single season uh, since an Italian cyclist named Marco Pantani did it back in 1998. Um, and so Chris Froome, obviously uh, a major accomplishment, a historic accomplishment here, uh, the Vuelta a España. And by the way, if you're a fan of the color red, and my wife is a fan of the color red, um, the leader's jersey in the Vuelta a España is a red jersey. It's a bright red jersey, just like it's the yellow jersey or the maillot jaune in the Tour de France. Um, and just like in the Tour de France where the, the leader might not just have a yellow jersey, but will like totally outfit himself with like yellow sunglasses and yellow bar tape, maybe even a yellow bike. Um, uh, and the Volta España did the same thing. And so in the final time trial, which came on the third to last day, um, Chris Froome wore a bright red uh, uh, kit, um, a skin suit. Um, and so, so yeah, if you're a fan of the color red, you should definitely check that out. Anyway, um, but, uh, but yeah, super impressive uh, on his part. Uh, the World Cycling Championship, speaking of pro cycling, is this week, as a matter of fact. The team time trials were today. Uh, the individual time trials, the junior races, and then, of course, the uh, elite men's and women's races are all next weekend. Uh, Ironman Chattanooga is next weekend. The World Championship 70.3 was last weekend in Chattanooga. Uh, Javier Gomez and Daniela Reef uh, both had really impressive uh, races that day, if you happen to see that. Uh, and then last weekend, Mo Farah. Um, who is not just a great runner, but he's truly one of the all-time great runners. Um, he hadn't lost a, uh, a world championship level race since 2011. Um, and so that means that he won the 5,000 and the 10,000 meters at the 2012 Olympics, 2013 World Championships, 2014 World Championships, 2015 World Championships, 2016 Olympics, and then... In 2017, just this past summer, when the uh, World Championships were in London once again, he won the 10,000 and he was outkicked in the 5,000 uh, at his last World Championship race. But anyway, he ran his last track race uh, just a couple weekends ago. Uh, he was able to win it in about as close as you could possibly win it. If you haven't actually seen it, uh, you should go back and look. It was a Weltklasse race in Zurich. Um, and, uh, and and by all means, check out that video too. Uh, but he is retiring from the track and he is going to be moving on to the roads where he's going to be doing half marathons and ultimately doing marathons. And so we'll look forward to, to hopefully great things from, from him on the roads over the course of the next little while here. Um, so there was a lot of feedback and interaction um, on Facebook um, uh, and on Twitter and, and um, about the the conversation that I had or the podcast that I put out uh, a couple of weeks ago. And you'll recall, if you haven't listened to it yet, episode 25, you should go back and take a listen to it before you actually listen to this one. Um, and I don't plan to make it, by the way, my general practice to like put one out and then do a follow-up. Um, but of course, that's what I did with the tech stuff because I had so much interaction on that. Um, and then I had so much interaction on this one that I decided that, that a follow-up was warranted here as well. And so... Um, but I do want to say this. I really like the feedback. Um, I think it's important. I think it's worthwhile. Um, and, and more than that, I think, it's, uh, I, I think it pushes me to grow um, as, as a thoughtful person in general and certainly as a thoughtful coach. Um, you know, in order to address the questions or the, the comments or the criticisms um, that, that people have, uh, that requires me to go to research, that requires me to discuss things with, with other experts, um, and that requires me to, to think deeply um, about my own training principles and philosophy. And so that's only a good thing. And so I appreciate all the people that, that ask me questions and give me feedback and all that sort of thing. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about that 
here today. Uh, and there are four different comments that I wanted to address. That if you didn't see them on the on the ITL Athletes page um, where I shared the podcast, if you didn't see them on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast page, um, I wanted to share them with you tonight and then talk a little bit about some of my responses and some of my thoughts related to those things. Um, now, real quick recap. Like I said, if you haven't listened to, to episode 25, make sure you go back and listen to that. But the gist of that episode, the gist of episode 25, was to say that that for a variety of reasons you're going to run much faster on your race day than you might think that you are. And specifically, I talked about four reasons. First, I talked about accumulated fatigue. That once you taper and once you get rid of a lot of the accumulated fatigue that you have, you're going to be able to race much, much faster on race day. And I talked about some of the research related to that, some of which is really, really uh, impressive about how much and how much better you can perform uh, once you've allowed your body to, to, to rest and recover and to heal and to make itself stronger prior to race day. Um, the second thing was about hills on courses. And I talked about how a lot of the races that we run are going to be on flatter and faster courses than the hilly courses uh, that we run. Uh, I was thinking about that a lot this morning as I did my last big long run for the Chicago Marathon on what is a much hillier course than the Chicago Marathon is going to be. Um, the third thing I talked about was the weather um, and about the research around how much weather can actually uh, make you faster. Um, a lot colder weather, in fact, than we think. So so the weather that you think that, that oh, this is really a nice, beautiful day to run. It's 60 degrees outside. Oh, so beautiful, so nice. Well, in fact, research shows that the ideal temperatures for running good marathons is more in the mid to high 40s. Um, and so so once you get that that better, that, that, that nicer weather, uh, be it in Chicago, be it in Berlin, be it at New York, um, be it wherever it's going to be, um, you're probably going to go faster then. And then I kind of talked about miscellaneous stuff. Um, miscellaneous stuff being the support, the adrenaline, um, the excitement around race day and all that stuff. Uh, and then I talked specifically about racing flats. So if you're going to be changing your shoes uh, and wearing a lighter pair of shoes, that can have a pretty significant impact on, on how fast you're able to run as well. And so you put all of these things together and, and you're able to run much, much faster on race day um, for your big target races than you are in training. And you should. That's the way it's kind of supposed to work. Um, you shouldn't be uh, doing your training pace and, and basically mimicking your race every single day in practice. That's not the way that, that good, sound, intelligent training actually works. So there were four comments, um, four pieces of feedback that I thought were really worthwhile and they were good questions and there were things that, that well, I thought all the questions were good questions. All the comments are certainly valued, but four things that I felt like shed light on a couple of holes in the last podcast um, and things that, that really need to be filled in. And so I, I thought I'd go ahead and share those with you. First one uh, from a listener, Lindsay. Lindsay said, and I'm going to go ahead and quote Lindsay. I'll quote everybody here if you don't mind. Hopefully you don't. Uh, I'm not going to say Lindsay's last name, but hey, a lot of people know Lindsay because she's fantastic. She's doing the, the Berlin Marathon one week from today, and I'm super excited for, even though getting into Berlin meant that she wasn't going to be doing Chicago, but that's okay. Lindsay, multi-time Ironman and, uh, and marathoner. She said, quote, you talked about having one A race for the year, which makes sense. Once you are finished with your racing season, how long of a transition season should you have before your A race in the following year in order to allow enough time between your A races year over year? For instance, my A race was IMLP, Ironman Lake Placid, in July, and the B race is Berlin on 924 next weekend. What is the earliest I should target an A race for 2018 if I'm considering an early race? Or should I plan this to be a B race instead and pick an A race later in the year? Unquote. Um, really good question here. Um, and I appreciate it for a variety of reasons. I appreciate it, number one, because she did, didn't refer to the season between her A races or the season when it's cold as the off season. She referred to it as the transition season. Very nice, Lindsay. I appreciate that. Um, and then... In addition, it's just a good question. Um, if somebody says, oh, yeah, yeah, I can only do one per year, and so I'm going to put you know, 20 weeks between the two of them or, or something like that, not so much. Um, and so, like she said, if you do a fall marathon, does that mean you have to wait and do another fall marathon? Or that means you have to wait a year and a half if you're going to do a spring A race? Um, I'm doing the Chicago Marathon in three weeks, as I've said so many times. Um, and I'm sure you're sick of hearing me say that. Um, and then I'm doing Boston in April. Happy Boston Registration Week, by the way. Um, I registered just on Monday, as a matter of fact. So uh, and got my acceptance. I'm on the entry list. It's super exciting here. But anyway, um, 
So does that mean that Boston can't be an A race for me because Chicago is very much an A race for me? Um, and and in answering this question, there was a couple of things that, that that I need to tell her first. And the one most important thing that I had to tell her first, and I'm saying this at the risk of sounding a little bit like a jerk or a little bit like an elitist, um, is that when we talk about you're only able to peak for one big A race a year, we're talking about a true, full-blown, 100% peak. Now, this means that you devote all your physical, all your social, all your financial, all your logistical resources into this one big race. And you literally gear all of your training for an entire year around this one big peak. Most age group athletes who are doing this as a hobby, who are doing it voluntarily, who are not trying to make a, a paycheck, don't do that. And that's okay. That's totally acceptable. That's totally fine. Um, in fact, most athletes who, who, who are amateur age group athletes, um, they can't do that. Um, they can't plan for one big peak a year because they just can't put that many eggs in one basket. Uh, too many things might intervene, be they injuries or life or work or whatever it happens to be, that, that would prevent them from really truly being able to focus entirely on one big peak the way they might actually like to do it. Um, and so when I say that you can only do one peak a year, and when I say that most coaches will tell you that you can only do one big peak a year, that's assuming that you're going up to the highest peaks that you possibly can. Um, And and in fact, most people don't quite go that high. Um, Most age groupers only get to maybe 80% of that ultimate peak or 90% of that ultimate peak. And if you're doing that, you can do a couple of kind of big target races a year. Now, each of those target races, if you do, say, one in the spring and one in the summer and one in the fall... If you do a big Ironman or a big, big uh, marathon or something like that, if you do something every three months, yeah, okay, you can do that and you can be fine, but you got to know that unless you're trying to go to a 100% peak, you're probably not going to perform quite as well as you could otherwise. That's okay. Um, Endurance sports is a big tent, and people are in endurance sports for a variety of issues. That's one thing I really like about endurance sports. There are so many different things that people can get out of doing endurance sports. Not everybody needs to get the same thing from it. And if what you need to get from it is doing a marathon every single week for 52 weeks a year, fantastic. Do that. More power to you. But you got to know you're not really going to run any of those marathons as well as you could if you spent 12 months focusing on one marathon. Now, back that argument up a little bit. What about once every three weeks? Well, of course not. Once, what about once every two months? Well, probably still not, no. What about once every three months? No. Six months? Eh, you're starting to, to get a little bit closer. Really and truly, if you want to do your absolute best, your absolute best, and you're able to focus all of your resources, all of your... your uh, physical and mental and social and and logistical resources and financial resources on one big race a year and and performance absolute best performance is your number one goal and that's what you need to do um but for most of us that's not that's not our situation that's not our situation And, and so because of that we can shorten that we can do multiple target races throughout the course of a year uh, and have very enjoyable years and have good performances even if they're not our absolute best performances so with that being backgrounded now let's say you are building to 100% you are doing your absolute mo- uh, your absolute utmost you're, you're doing everything you possibly can in order to perform the very best you possibly can in your big huge target a races if you do that you need about 30 weeks between your two big A races. About 30 weeks. That's the bare minimum. Um, you take about six weeks to recover, up to six weeks to recover, depending on what your big target race is. You obviously don't need six weeks to recover if you're doing a 10K. Um, but but uh, you will need probably six good weeks to recover physically and mentally and financially and logistically and socially um, if you're doing an Ironman or if you're doing certainly if you're doing a marathon. Um, and to start getting back into the groove, to start finding that groove once again. Um, and then after that six weeks, you'd have about 12 weeks to build a base and about 12 weeks to, to actually build towards your race, a more race-specific phase. That's the bare minimum. Um, now, 
if you take longer than that, if you take longer than 30 weeks, you can probably have a better peak and you can probably have more of them throughout the course of your life. And so, yeah, you can do the math and you can say, okay, once every 30 weeks, that's ultimately adds up to, to almost two a year. Um, yeah, okay, fair. Um, but you're going to be shortening your career if you're doing a big major peak every 30 weeks. Um, and, and ultimately, you're going to not be able to quite get as high as, as you might be able to get otherwise, not perform as well as you might be able to perform otherwise if you're doing the, the bare minimum between those times. And so it doesn't have to be 52 weeks between your peaks. It doesn't have to be a full year there. Um, 30 weeks is the bare minimum, but know that you are giving up just a little bit over the long, long term um, if you're going for, for 30 weeks there. Now, it's, it's also worth saying in the context of talking about peaks that it is possible, it's, it's very possible, in fact, and a lot of people do it, um, to have more than one race inside your peak. And so when I say that, that, that you can only have one peak a year or you need to put 30 weeks between your big major peaks, that doesn't mean that you can only do one big race. Um, I mentioned in the last podcast that, that there were some swimmers that in a study were actually found to, to have tapered for seven weeks um, they, they reduced their training for seven weeks and they were able to maintain their peaks for that seven weeks. Those swimmers were actually Olympic level swimmers and they had spent more than a year getting ready for the Olympic trials and then for the Olympics themselves. And they basically maintained that peak from the trials into the Olympics. The trials in, in the United States, as you might know, the Olympic swimming trials um, are actually more competitive than the Olympics themselves um, because the, the, there's so many fantastic swimmers in the United States. And there's a couple other countries, Australia being one of them, that are the same way. Um, and so, so it's harder to make the team than it is actually to, to make the Olympic final itself once you're actually on the team. Um, and so a lot of, of, of Olympic swimmers don't have the option of saying, oh, yeah, I'm just going to train through the trials and do a really hard peak at the Olympics. They have to go ahead and start beginning their peak uh, during that time. Um, and so a lot of uh, elite age groupers I've found that do long course triathlon, um, they might do a peak for Kona um, in October, in the first weekend in October. Um, and then they will recover from that quickly and turn around real quick. And as part of that same peak, they'll do Ironman Arizona or Ironman Florida or Ironman Cozumel um, or something like that. And they'll requalify for Kona a year later. And then they'll take time off and they'll spend the next 40 weeks getting right next 48 weeks getting ready for the following year Kona where they're going to do another five week, six week long peak um, during which time they'll, they'll, so, so they'll, they'll actually have that time. And so, so you don't have to make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, my peak only means I get to do one race. No, you can squeeze a couple of different races into your peak. Um, there was uh, Ironman Louisville, which is now in October. It's coming up this year on October 15th. Um, it used to be in late August. It used to be about five or six weeks before Kona. Um, and, and it used to be the last race where you could qualify for Kona. And so if you qualified for Kona at Ironman Louisville, you literally had to turn right around and do Kona five or six weeks later. Now, there's one of two choices you have if you're in that situation. One is just to make Kona a victory lap and just kind of jog through the course and have fun and, and you know eat lots of poi while you're there and all that sort of thing. Um, but the other thing you could do is, is you could train for Louisville for a long time. You could build very slowly, very deliberately, and then peak for Louisville and then maintain that peak over the course of five or six weeks for Kona. Um, but the longer that you're going to maintain that peak, the longer your, your, your base and your build actually has to be toward that peak. Um, so I mentioned 30 weeks a minute ago. Um, if you're going to be maintaining your, 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 your peak for, for, more than, for more than two or three weeks, um, you're going to need to build for longer than 30 weeks. Um, so, um, all right, next question. So that's number one. That was a long one. Uh, next question or ne- next comment came from Caitlin, which is another great question, and I appreciate her asking. And this was a big one, and I'm really, really glad she brought this up. And frankly, to be honest, when I was recording the podcast a week ago or two weeks ago or whenever it was, I had in the back of my head that somebody was probably going to bring this up. And so I'm psyched that she actually brought it up, uh, and I appreciate it. She said, Caitlin wrote, quote, 
so I understand that the studies concluded that you don't gain on the downhill what you lose on the uphill of races. But what about the common thing I hear about flat races using the same muscles and rolling hills switch things up? So there's no reality to that statement and having your legs prepared for zero diversity in the muscles use in a flat race? Uh, unquote. So essentially what she's talking about there, and this is something I hear uh, a lot of people who are training for flat marathons say. Um, I've even heard it in some places that, that I otherwise really highly respect. Um, that, that, oh, if you're training for Berlin or if you're training for Chicago or if you're training for um, London or any of these other really flat, fast races, you need to be doing a lot of your training on flat because flat races don't change up your muscle use. Um, and if you're able to run up and down hills, well, yeah, that, that recruits different muscles when you're running up hills. And so, so your, your flat running muscles, if you will, your, your, your flat ground running muscles will get a little bit of rest while you're running uphill. And then, and then, uh, they won't tire as quickly, therefore. Um, so the, the, the not so subtle implication there, of course, is that, that hilly races are, are easier on you than, than flat races are. Um, and so again, I hear this a lot and, and, um, I responded to her um, that, that two things. Um, first, I said that there's, there's a lot of studies that show that, that uh, when you compare folks who do hilly runs with folks who do flat runs, the folks who do hilly runs will race faster. Um, the running up and down hills, they make you stronger. Uh, they improve your form. They make you more efficient. And all of those things, being stronger, having better form, being a more efficient runner, all of those things don't just help you when you're running up and down hills. They also help you when you're racing on flat ground. Um, incidentally, as a side note, um, a lot of the things that, that hills have been shown to do um, are also things that a lot of times now you're hearing inside running circles of uh, being advantages of, of lifting weights. Um, and so, so hills are like building in weight training, if you will. Um, there's a really commonly cited study from 2013. Um, it was in the International Journal of Sports and Physiological Performance, uh, and it was called, creatively enough, Effects of Different Uphill Interval Training Programs on Running Economy and Performance. Um, and they took 20 well-trained runners. Now, quick side note on this, it's important when you're looking at a study to see who it is that they're actually taking as the subjects for the study. And, and in this instance, it's important they're actually taking well-trained runners. Um, because as you can imagine, and I, as I can certainly attest from many, many years of coaching high school runners, uh, most of whom were novices when they came out for the team, with, with somebody who's not a well-trained runner, with somebody who's a novice runner, somebody who's brand new, if you, if you do anything for them, they're going to get better. <laughs> and so if you look at a lot of like the stuff around like CrossFit, for example, and, and I think CrossFit has a place and I think there are some really good aspects of CrossFit. And so unlike some endurance coach, I'm not going to totally beat up on CrossFit. But, um, but if you look at like a lot of the stuff that CrossFit talks about, oh, yeah, these people have improved so much. It's because the people weren't doing anything prior to actually coming to CrossFit. And so, oh, they've, they've improved so much, they're so much faster and so much stronger than they used to be. Yeah, it's because they were untrained before they got there. And so it didn't have to be CrossFit. They could have been you know, doing an indoor Nordic skiing machine. They could have been on the elliptical and they would have gotten a whole lot faster and what, all these physiological markers would have improved just because they're going from nothing to doing something. So anyway, in this study from 2013, they took 20 well-trained runners. And so when they're well-trained, this means that you're actually able to tell the difference between different training modalities. You're actually able to tell, okay, which training actually results in uh, a better result um, as opposed to, you know, when you're working with novice runners and anything will give you a result. Um, and they basically gave all the 20 of them, each of the 20 of them, one of five different types of, of uphill running workouts for six weeks. Um, and, and there wasn't a whole lot of variety here. They basically just said, okay, there's differing intensities. We're going to give some of you really short hill sprints, for example. And so you're going to run 15 seconds, but you're going to go super duper hard. And then other people were just going to have you like, when you go out for your runs, we're just going to put you on hillier courses uh, and that sort of thing. And so, so different, one of five types of different uphill workouts. At the beginning and at the end of the study, the runners did a 5K time trial. Um, and at the end of the study, they found that regardless of the, which types of hill workouts, so any of the five types of hill workouts that they did, all the groups, all 20 runners um, who had done hill workouts over the course of the preceding six weeks improved their 5K time trial by an average of about 2%. Now, 2% might not sound like a whole lot, but if you're a 20-minute 5K runner, 
2% is 30 seconds. That's a lot um, for a 5K. That's like a different time zone. That's like a different area code in a 5K. 2% is significant. And they didn't really necessarily do a whole lot of different stuff. They just started putting more hills. Any kind of hill training in there. Um, Now, they did end up breaking it down just a little bit. And they said that the most intense sort, so like the hill sprints, uh, where they only went like 10 to 15 seconds, but they went really hard and focused on form, that stuff actually benefited running economy the most. Um, and then they also found that running economy being being how efficiently you run, how much oxygen you're using when you run. Um, and then the mid-range intensity, so like the level three intensity um, of people like running, doing hill repeats at tempo pace, essentially, or tempo effort, that benefited aerobic performance the most. Um, but then in the end, they ultimately concluded that, quote, these findings support anecdotal reports for incorporating uphill interval training in the training programs of distance runners to improve physiological parameters relevant to running performance. Until more data are obtained, runners can assume that any form of high-intensity uphill interval training will benefit 5-kilometer time trial performance, unquote. Um, and so, again, these are people that are being measured not running up and down hilly courses. They're being measured racing on flat courses, flat 5Ks, um, and doing repeats during interval sessions um, of any sort um, over the course of six weeks improved, made a marked improvement on, on their running. Now, to be fair, there was also an article in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning, also in 2013, as a matter of fact, that looked at traditional track workouts versus hill workouts. And so track workouts would be like the sort of thing that I coach on Tuesday mornings uh, where you come and you run 6 by 800 at 5K pace or something like that. There's no hills on the track, obviously, unless you run on a really crappy track. Um, but there's no hills on the track. And so so you could kind of say, well, well, there's no hills on the track. Is, is that still good training? And so this particular study in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning wanted to look into, okay, well, if hills are so great – where our, our, our traditional track workouts where it's totally flat. Are those okay? And they took 32 well-trained runners, again, well-trained, uh, and they also did them for six weeks. They had them do 12 workouts total. They put some on flat ground. They put some of them on a 10% grade, so a significant grade. Uh, and then they also had a control group that just didn't do any hard workouts at all. Um, and they, uh, they ultimately found in the end, quote, with regard to running performance, the results indicate that both uphill and level ground interval training can induce significant improvements in run to exhaustion tests in well-trained runners at the speed associated with VO2 max. That's about 3K to 5K pace. Uh, but the traditional level grade training produces greater gains. So in other words, if you're running at your VO2 max, if you're running at 3K to 5K pace on flat tracks, when you go out and you race a 5K, be it a 5K hilly or a 5K flat, you're ultimately going to be doing a little bit better. Uh, now, the reason for that, I think, and they didn't actually venture into a reason for this, the reason for that, I think, is because if you're trying to run that effort up a 10% grade, you're just not going to be moving as quickly. Um, and so the big takeaway that I that I have from these two studies and, and the way that I answered Caitlin when she wrote this question on um, on on uh, on the Facebook page, um, is that, that, yeah, you should do a little bit stuff on flat ground. Um, and there's two good reasons for it. One is that speed. If you're constantly running up hills, if you're constantly running up and down hills and you're never touching your marathon pace or you're never touching your 5k pace or your 10k pace based on what your, your, your target race is, then when you get into the race, yeah, that speed is going to be something that's going to be difficult for you to obtain. And so you need to do some training on flat ground because you need to do some training at that particular speed. There are neuromuscular reasons and there are psychological reasons why you need to do some training at that speed. If you want to race a marathon at eight-minute pace, you need to do a little bit of running at eight-minute pace. Um, you probably need to do a lot of running at eight minute pace um, in order that you know what that speed feels like and your body knows what that speed feels like. And if you're constantly running up hills, you might not ever hit eight minute pace. And so, yeah, you need to do that. Um, and that's fine. So do some of your marathon specific runs on the flats. Absolutely. The other thing that I told Caitlin, and I think this is true as well, is that it's good mental prep as well. Um, now, as you probably know, and as I've said several times, and as I did a whole podcast on, I'm a very strong believer that the, the, the mental side of sports and the physical side of sports are deeply intertwined with one another. Um, and, and you need to be mentally strong to be able to run a very specific pace and hold that pace 
and not really waver a whole lot from that pace over the course of an entire marathon. Three hours, four hours, five hours, however long you're planning to run your marathon. It takes a lot of mental discipline to be able to keep the hammer down for that long. And when you get to go up and down hills, it gives you a little bit of break from that. It gives you a mental break. Unfortunately, I think people have kind of said, oh, well, it gives you a physical break as well. And that physical break really makes it... No, it's a mental break is what it gives you. If you can, if you can be tough, you can maintain that, 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 that mental toughness, you should be able to hold your pace all the way to the finish without any breaks. Um, but, but it's hard. Um, and I recognize that. And because, because it's hard... Um, is is perhaps why some people might think that that hilly courses are, are a little bit better. But because it is hard, that's a good reason to to do a little bit of training on flats as well. So do a long run on the flat, by all means. See what it's like to to not get any sort of variation in in your pace. Um, see what it's like to actually not get any sort of variation, uh, anything to to give you a mental break from what's going on. Yeah, by all means, do that. Um, don't do all your training on it. Because it's not necessarily good training to, to, to be running on the flat all the time. You're going to be much stronger. You're going to be much more efficient um, if you're incorporating more hills into your training. Now, there's one caveat of this. And I feel obliged to mention this caveat for a couple of reasons. Not the least of which is that I'm somebody who's dealing with this. Uh, and that caveat is injuries. Um, running up and down hills a lot is tougher on your Achilles in particular. And I have an Achilles issue right now. And so I've been adding in some flat treadmill running so that I'm able to still do some aerobic work and still do some running, but not get um, that that real strain on my Achilles, that real pull on my Achilles. Um, because the most important goal and everybody's A goal for any race should be able to, 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 should be to get to the starting line healthily. Um, and so in order to get me to the starting line, I need to do a little bit of flat running. And I've been doing that on a treadmill, like I say, um, uh, in order to keep from pulling on my Achilles too much. Um, if I had the choice, if my Achilles wasn't bothering me, those would be hilly runs as well. Um, the second thing, uh, as far as injuries goes, is, as I said on the last one, if you run uphill, oftentimes you have to go downhill. Um, and running downhill actually beats up your body more than running uphill. And so if you have like knee issues, for example, uh, and you're running hilly courses, you're going to have to be banging down those hilly courses on your, your tendonitis knees or whatever they happen to be, on your iliotibial bands. Um, and so, so, yeah, I get that. It's important to be able to get to the starting line. And so my one caveat for saying that, okay, if you want to keep everything flat, if you're dealing with injuries and you're trying to hold together in order to make it the starting line... I'm not going to give you a hard time about doing your runs on flats. However, if you come to me and say, oh, well, I'm racing a flat race, and so I'm doing all my stuff on flat. No, then you're not doing good training. Um, now, third thing uh, comes from another podcast listener, a guy that I've just gotten to know well over the course of the last little while and who I like a lot named Eddie. Um, not the same Eddie that that got me the special deal and the front row seat of the New York City Marathon last year. Um, that Eddie, Eddie from the New York City Marathon, is doing the Chicago Marathon in three weeks, and so I look forward to being on the starting line with him of that race. But this is a different Eddie. Uh, this Eddie um, is an experienced marathoner, um, and he's particularly experienced when it comes to run Disney races. And so he's done uh, all, literally all of the run Disney races. My wife and I did a podcast on run Disney last year that you might remember. Um, and he wrote back and said, oh, yeah, I've done all of these races on both coasts, as a matter of fact. So it's not just like he's run the uh, the, the Walt Disney World Marathon. Instead, he's run the Walt Disney World Marathon here and the Disney Disneyland Tinkerbell Half Marathon on, on, in California and just all sorts of things like that. So anyway, super experienced athlete. Now, he wrote, um, kind of following up on, on, on what Caitlin wrote, uh, quote, I was definitely one under the belief that you should run flatter areas for flatter marathon versus hills. The muscle fatigue, at least for me, always seemed greater on flat grades like Chicago slash Disney than it is for rolling hill courses. All of my PRs come on somewhat hilly courses. Now, quick pause here, unquote, quick pause. Again, going back to what I just said about Caitlin, I submit that that comes... First of all, I don't know what his training was and how those two, those two trainings would compare. And so, so it's kind of hard to say, hard to make an apples-to-apples comparison. But, but more than that, um, I would say that, that, that there's probably an overlap between um, 
the the mental side and and the physical side and and the fact that he's getting a little bit of break going on these somewhat hilly courses as he called them that has to do with with his physical performance uh, the mental break is, is is promoting his physical performances anyway back to what he said quote I just assumed I wore out quicker on the flat courses because I didn't train on flat but I'm guessing that might not be the case question he's right by the way that's not the case question. <laughs> Uh, and since I'm pretty sure you know the Disney Marathon course, but when you leave Animal Kingdom and head towards ESPN Wide World of Sports, that portion is uphill. It never fails. Uh, it never fails me, but I will always run faster and feel more comfortable on that stretch of Osceola Drive than on any other section of the course, and is the only part of the course with consistent grade for a few miles. Why would that be? Unquote. Fantastic question. Now, fantastic questions. Um, and I have a theory on this. And, and so I didn't actually write him back on Facebook because I, cause it's just a theory. And I spent a whole lot of time actually researching, trying to figure out whether there was any physiological data on this. And I couldn't find any, as a matter of fact. But my theory is this. My theory is, as I related to what I said about Caitlin just a second ago, is that when we hit a grade, when we get to the bottom of a hill, we change our mindsets. We, we focus more on what we're doing. We, we begin to become more in tuned, uh, attuned to, to what we're up to. We, we, we tend to meet our efforts. We tend to pay more attention to, to running efficiently. And so I think that the fact that, that he's getting on that slight uphill and he's actually running better and feeling better is not a physical thing but rather it's because his mindset is changing. Um, I had an athlete who last weekend was doing a super hilly half marathon, and she PR'd in the half marathon uh, by several minutes, and I was, I, was, I was really proud of that. But she, the part of the marathon course was on a section of um, Atlanta called the Beltline. Um, and there's this slow, gradual grade for about two miles up the Beltline. And when she got onto the Beltline, more than probably any other part in the race, she really tuned in very closely to what she was doing. And she said, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and she executed this plan, and she got on up the hill. And I think we all do that when we, when we get to the bases of, of, of hills. Um, and so my theory is that that's what he's doing. Now, I would also submit that a product of this greater focus is that he's becoming more efficient as he runs up this hill. Now, I don't have Eddie's uh, uh, heart rate data, and by all means, Eddie, I encourage you to, to, to follow up with me and tell me. Um, and so I don't know what his heart rate data looks like as he's going up the hill. Is it going up? It might be going up a little bit. So even though he feels better, his heart rate actually might be going up. He actually might be working a little bit harder. Um, um, it might still be the same, just because he's running more efficiently, because he's more attuned to what he's doing as he's running up that hill. Now, that's my theory. And I want to actually recognize that it's simply a theory, and it's simply what I think might be going on. And I recognize that, that, that it might actually be a little bit dodgy. Um, I could not find any research on whether people run more efficiently when they're running uphill. Uh, and I looked. Um, now, there are several studies in cycling that show that, that when you increase the gradient, it actually makes you less efficient in cycling, um, which, by the way, is contrary to some of the conventional wisdom in cycling. Um, but there are several studies that show that, that, that as you increase from 0 to 4% to 8%, you actually become a less efficient peddler in cycling, and, and, you, and you're required to use more muscle groups, and, and, and you have more dead spots in your pedaling and things like that. Um, and so... so if that were to transfer over to running, it would suggest that, well, you're actually being less efficient as you're starting to go uphill here. And, and here I am submitting that, that maybe you're more efficient as you're going uphill because you're actually more attuned to what you're doing. I don't know. But, 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 that, but that's my theory for Eddie here, and, and, and that's, how, that, that's how I explain that. And I assure you I spent a lot of time looking for research on that, and I couldn't find anything in particular. The last comment that I wanted to talk about comes from Christy, uh, and this was a great one. Uh, for a variety of reasons, and so there's a lot to say about what Chrissy had to say, and and you recall, like I said when I was when I was uh, uh, rehashing the last one, I said that that I said that that uh, accumulated fatigue slash tapering. That's one reason why you're going to go faster. And I said weather is one reason why you're going to go faster. Hills are one reason why you're going to go faster, like fewer hills. Um, and and then I said um, uh, something like racing flats is something else why you're going to go faster as well. Well, she wrote. Quote, unfortunately, though, number one, Royal Oak, where she lives, Royal Oak, Michigan, is already flat. Number two, I'm not changing my shoes. Number three, weather has been pretty cool lately in Michigan. 
I basically have fatigue going for me and race day adrenaline. If my goal is a four-hour marathon and 907-ish pace, how far off race pace should I be training? 930s all the way up to 10? I don't, I don't believe that I can magically run a minute per mile faster than 26.2 miles, especially that last hour when my body has only trained up to three hours. Unquote. Now, to give you a little bit of background or to help you read between the lines here and what she's saying is, is one, her goal is to run... 907 pace essentially to run to run four hours and she's been going out and doing a lot of her long runs at pretty close to marathon pace and you'll recall my saying last week you shouldn't be doing your long runs at your marathon pace Uh, you need to be doing your long runs a lot slower than your marathon pace Um, 60 to 90 seconds slower than your marathon pace so even when she said 930s all the way up to 10 she should be doing 10s all the way up to 10:30s or 11s, um, and so and so so you know even what, what she thought was just so so ridiculous 9:30 all the way up to 10. No, you can actually even go more slower than that. Um, and then, in addition, her longest long run has been three hours, and that's the reason why she said that she's only trained up to three hours. Um, and so again, kind of take those those last couple of seconds or last couple of sentences here that she said. If my goal is a four-hour marathon and 907-ish pace, how far off race pace should I be training? 930s all the way up to 10. I don't believe I can magically run a minute per mile faster for 26.2 miles, especially that last hour when my body has only trained up to three hours. There are so many good things in what she wrote here, and I totally appreciate her honesty with this. I think a lot of runners think this way, but they either can't articulate it or they don't want to. They think they're going to offend me or they think they're going to offend their coach or something else like that. And they just kind of quietly go out and they run all their runs at marathon pace and they think that that they're not running far enough and all that sort of thing. And so I really, really was glad that she said this and I really appreciate it honestly. Now let's start with the elephant in the room on it. The magic part where she said that I don't believe I can magically run a minute per mile faster. It's not magic. Um, it's exercise physiology. It's the way that it works. It's what training is. Um, but that being said, I get how it can sometimes feel like magic. I have definitely had those races, and these races are awesome, by the way. And they're the races you live for, and they're the races that you want to have. It's the reason why you train. I have had those races where I go out and I run so much faster than I thought I was capable of running. Um, I've definitely had runs where I'm going out at an easy pace and I feel like garbage. Um, I remember in college, I would be running with so much accumulated fatigue. I would go out for a five-mile morning run running seven-minute pace or a little bit slower than that, and I would feel like garbage. And then I would go out that weekend and race at under five minutes per mile, and it would be like a so-so race for me. It wouldn't even necessarily be my best race. My race pace was, was well under five minutes per mile, but yet running easy pace at seven minutes per mile sometimes would absolutely feel terrible. And it, it would be mind-blowing to me that I was actually going to be able to go out and race at sub-five-minute pace when seven-minute pace felt terrible in training sometimes. So yeah, that's kind of magical. I get that. Last year, almost exactly a year ago, as a matter of fact, I ran a half marathon in Athens as part of my build-up for the New York City Marathon. Um, and I'd taken a couple of days off beforehand. I'd taken two days completely off, and then I'd swam a day. And so I was—I had kind of sort of what we call a drop taper, a real quick taper there at the end of the week. And I had—I had been training really, really hard, trying to get in shape for for New York City for the marathon. And I go out in Athens, and I'm in this hilly Athens half marathon, and I go through the mile mark 15 seconds faster than I was planning to run for the race. Now. I've been running for a long time, and so I have a pretty good sense of how hard a particular pace is supposed to feel, regardless of of what the actual pace is. And so in my head, I was like, this is the right pace. I'm just going to kind of keep on going. This is the right effort level. I'm going to keep on going. Next next minute, same thing, about 10 seconds faster. Next mile, same thing, about 10, 15 seconds faster. Next mile, fourth mile, still 10, 15 seconds faster. At this point, I'm now a minute ahead of my goal for the race, what I thought I was capable of doing. So I promptly ended up uh, uh, amending my goal, and I ended up running two minutes faster than my goal on that day. I look back on that race so fondly, even though it hurt, and it was a hard race, because I ran two minutes faster than I thought I was going to run based upon my training. Yeah, that's magic. That feels like magic to me. But of course, it's not actually magic. It's, it's, it's training and tapering and getting rid of that accumulated fatigue. And so... so 
on the one hand, I want to say to Christy, it's not magic, it's exercise physiology. And I, and I want to be kind of snarky like that about it. But on the other hand, when, when everything comes together on race day, it does kind of feel magical. And it's those magic moments that make distance running fantastic. So, second, let's talk about accumulated fatigue. And again, responding still here to, to what Christy said. I led with accumulated fatigue last week. It was the first thing that I talked about. Um, and there's a reason why I talked about it, because it's the number one thing. Like I said last week, um, marathon programs, Ironman programs, 5K programs, literally all of endurance training is predicated on, on accumulated fatigue. Now, I went out today, and I did my longest run prior to the Chicago Marathon. And I'm going to talk about my training here because I don't know exactly what Chrissy's up to right now. Uh, I know that her coach you know, very much believes the same sort of thing I do. And, and, and so I'm sure that she's working on principles of accumulated fatigue as well. But, but I went out today and I ran um, about two minutes per mile slower than, than I planned to run in Chicago. And it was a hillier course, and it was on trails and stuff like that. So, so you can you can kind of factor that in a little bit. But but once you factor out the the hills, and once you factor out the the um, the the trails, that's still more than a minute slower than what I planned to run in Chicago. Um, but yesterday, I spent two and a half hours on my bike, destroying myself. I hurt myself on the bike yesterday, man. It was the hardest bike workout I've had in a long time. On Friday. I did a workout in which I ran about 10 miles um, at a fartlek pace where I was going back and forth uh, between marathon goal pace and 10K pace. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for an hour. On Thursday, I took it easy on the bike, but it still had a bike workout of, of about an hour. Wednesday, I lifted weights. I did squats with one leg. I did squats with both legs. I did leg extensions. I did this little push thing that works on your glutes. I did the abductor and adductor machines. I'm the only guy in the gym who uses those. Um, and then after that, I ran um, and and did a fast finish with that run such that I ran the last two miles at, at about marathon pace effort. Um, before that, on Tuesday, I did a really hard hour and a half bike workout that Tuesday. And then before that, on Monday, last Monday, I swam for 45 minutes. And then before that Monday, last Sunday, I ran um, about 18 miles. I ran about a little bit over two hours, about two hours and 20 minutes. All of that stuff I brought into today's run. Um, my legs were tired today. And we ran that first little bit super slow. The guy I was running with, Patrick, he did a half marathon, PR and a half marathon last Saturday, did four miles at tempo pace on Tuesday, then did that workout with me, that that hour-long workout with me on Friday morning. He had a lot of fatigue coming in this. My legs were hurting a lot more today and had a lot more fatigue in them than they're going to have on race day in three weeks. And that's on purpose. That's that that's We, we, we do that on purpose. Um, and so given that, given that, mile one of a long run isn't the same as mile one of the marathon. You know, she said, Christy said, I've only trained up to three hours. What she's saying there is that I've only done a long run of three hours. She's looking at her long run in a vacuum. What did she do the day before the long run? Two days before the long run, three days before the long run, four days before the long run. She carried all of this fatigue and all of this stuff into that long run. And so such that mile one or hour one of the long run isn't the same as mile one or hour one of the marathon. Um, it's it's like mile 13. It's like mile 15 of the marathon. I started my long run today with about as much fatigue in my legs as I'll probably have past the halfway point of the Chicago Marathon in three weeks. And then I ran two hours and 40 minutes on top of that fatigue. Um, my run, physiologically speaking today, was not like a two-hour and 40-minute run. It was, I, I probably had the same benefits from that that I would have gotten from a four-hour run because of the accumulated fatigue that I actually brought into it. And so for her to say, I'm only trained up to three hours. No, you've only done a three-hour long run. But you're trained for something a lot longer than that because you don't just do that long run in a vacuum. You carry all sorts of fatigue into that. Now, I often stack runs like this. I had an athlete who texted me just this past Friday 
Um, and she said, yeah, so I, I did my eight miles yesterday and I did my 17 miles today. And I'm really concerned about the fact that 17 is as far as I'm going to go. All these ladies that I run with, they're all doing 20 miles next week. I said, well, what are they doing the day before? She said, they're taking the day off. So what are they doing the day after? They're taking the day off. And I said, so this week you did eight miles on Thursday with some quality built into it, with some three-minute pickups built into it, with some fartlek in it. Then on Friday, on that fatigue, you went out and ran 17. So over the course of two days, you got 25 miles with some quality in it. And you finished that 25 miles strongly, feeling good, feeling solid, not completely depleted and wasted. And you think that's not better than your friends who are going to go out next week and over the course of three days, they're going to run 20 miles once. And they're going to stumble through the last five miles and they're going to be tired and they're going to pleat themselves and everything else like that. I said, the train that you're doing is a lot better than the train they're doing. Just because they're doing 20 miles in a single run doesn't mean that their training is, is better than the train that you're doing. Um, so that's important to keep in mind. Third thing based on what Christy's saying here, uh, and in response to what she's saying, is about the pace in your long run. Now, as I explained the last time, the point of your long run is endurance. You have all sorts of other workouts you do at different times of the week that work on your pace, that work on your max VO2, that work on your efficiency, that work on your strength, that work on, on all sorts of other stuff. The point of your long run is straight up endurance. And your endurance is built at a slower pace. That's how you build endurance. If you're running faster, you're not building your endurance necessarily. You're building something else, um, and and those and, and that's that defeats the purpose of the long run. You bring together all of these different things on race day. If you run your long runs too fast, then first of all, you're not going to have an endurance benefit. And so in a weird sort of roundabout physiological way, by running your long runs too fast, you're reducing your endurance. Secondly, if you run your long runs too fast, you're going to, to, uh, you're going to feel more tired on your other days when you're working on other things. And so it's not just going to reduce your endurance. It's going to reduce and throw off all the rest of the pieces that need to come together on race day as well. Now, let me be clear on something when I say this, though. Again, your pace in your long run should be at least 90 seconds slower, 60 to 90 seconds slower than, than, than your pace um, that you plan to run. But let's be clear. If you want to run a marathon at your training pace, that's fine. That's great. If, if your goal for the marathon is to go out there and take selfies at the mile markers and stop to talk to fans and to make new friends along the way, that's great. That's fantastic. Like I said at the very beginning of this podcast a long time ago, that that there's a big tent in endurance sports. And, and if that's what you want to get out of a marathon, that's great. And so when I'm talking about training... It for your marathon and not running your marathon pace for your long runs, I'm talking about if you're trying to really perform at the marathon distance, if you're trying to perform at the highest level. Now, I know that Christy is trying to perform at the highest level. She has a goal, four hours. Um, but if Christy just wanted to go out and just run a long run and not really dig deep in the last 10 miles and the last 10K and just kind of wanted to jog on through it, that's fine. That's great. That's not what Christy wants to do, I know. That's not what I want to do when I go in Chicago in three weeks. Um, that's what most of the people I coach don't want to do. And I think that's what most people listening to this podcast don't want to do. But there are people who simply want to go and enjoy the experience, who want to jog through it, who want to take it easy, whose heart rate's never going to get out of zone two. Fantastic. If you want that to be you and you want that to be a marathon experience, that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so when I'm talking about taking it easy on your long runs and pretty much everything else I talk about in this podcast, I'm talking about if you want to actually have your best, fastest performance on race day. The fourth thing to talk about has to do with the distance of your long runs. And I promised a friend of mine from high school who listens to the podcast named Philip that I would talk about this tonight uh, because he saw the length of my long run today and said, what? You went out and ran this far? You ran more than two hours? I thought that you were against two hour, anything longer than two hour long runs. This is something that, that I have modified my stance on a little bit over the course of the last little while. But let's talk a little bit about, about the distance of long runs uh, and when you get benefits from them. Now, First of all, let's talk about what the exercise physiology says about endurance benefits of running. If you go out for a run and you run for two minutes, that two-minute run is going to give you more endurance than that one-minute run is going to be. By the way, they're both going to give you a very minuscule amount of endurance, but, you know, whatever. 
three minutes more than two minutes, 10 minutes more than three minutes, 20 minutes more than 10 minutes, 30 minutes more than 20 minutes, right? And so the longer that you're running, the more endurance benefits that you get. And if you chart out those endurance benefits, you sort of see that gradual line growing. If we were in a classroom right now, I'd draw the chart on the board right now, and you'd have that gradually growing endurance. Now, as time goes on, if you're charting that out, if you're drawing a graph of the endurance benefit of a run, the endurance benefit of the run are the greatest. They increase the most rapidly between 60 and 90 minutes. So they kind of grow up gradually, gradually, gradually. Then you get to 60 minutes, and then suddenly they jump up. And they stay at this really, really, really high rate of improvement up to about 90 minutes, and then they kind of start leveling back off again. right? And then you just get back to where you're just, just a little bit more. So for an hour and 40 minutes, 100 minutes is just a little bit more than 90 minutes. An hour and 50 minutes is just a little bit more than an hour and 40 minutes. And so your endurance is still going up, but it's not going up really sharply, right? And so the biggest endurance gains happen between 60 and 90 minutes. Now, that being said, there's something else going on too. Right about the time you get to two hours, if you're again charting it, the risk of injury goes up sharply after two hours and it never levels off. Also, after two hours, the recovery time from a run goes up sharply and it never levels off. And so if you run five hours, for example, yeah, that's going to give you more endurance than if you run two hours. Not a whole lot more endurance, but it's going to give you more endurance than if you run five hours, or than if you run two hours. But the risk of injury you're going to be taking to run for five hours is going to be astronomical. And the amount of time it's going to take you to recover from that is going to be astronomical. It's going to be so large, in fact, that if you do a five-hour run in preparation for a marathon, chances are good you're not going to recover in time to do the actual marathon. Um, Even if you wait for six weeks, you're not going to be able to, to go into the marathon fully fresh, even if you taper because your body's going to be so beaten up from doing that five-hour long run or that four-hour long run. And so given that, there's not a lot of compelling reasons to go a whole lot farther than two hours when you're going for your long runs. Again, biggest endurance benefits happen between 60 and 90 minutes, between an hour and an hour and a half. And at the two-hour mark, your rates of injury and your length of recovery go up sharply. And so as a coach or as an athlete, you really have to weigh, all right, how much is it worth rolling the dice here? How long am I going to make my long run for the sake of of getting ready for my marathon? How much injury am I going to risk and how much recovery time am I going to give up for a very minor endurance benefit once I go beyond two hours? How much time am I going to give up? I have found that three hours is about the max. If you go beyond three hours, the endurance benefits are just not worth the risk of injury and the amount of time that it's going to take to recover. Um, now, it can be valuable for, for, for some runners to do one or two runs of up to three hours. Um, if you're not super susceptible to injury, if this is not your first marathon training cycle, um, if you're planning to be running four hours or five hours for the marathon, yeah, it can be worthwhile to go up to three hours. Um, But if you're really looking to increase your endurance, you're actually much better off getting some of your other runs of the week up to 90 minutes. Um, Because again, remember, the endurance benefits are greatest between 60 minutes and 90 minutes. And so by all means, run a three-hour run on Sunday. But rather than bumping your three-hour run to four hours to increase your endurance, you're actually better off keeping your Sunday run at three hours and then bumping your Thursday run up to 90 minutes, gradually working up to where it's 90 minutes. You're going to get bigger endurance benefits from doing that than you will be from adding an hour or an hour and a half or two hours to your long to your long run itself. So something to keep in mind as you're planning out your long runs here. Um, I can't help but think that back in the day, all the coaches that we had and all the high school coaches like, oh yeah, just go out and run and then stretch a little bit. There's a lot more to it than that, folks. Um, so This was a long one. I appreciate your listening, and uh, good luck.
Thanks again for listening, everybody. I really appreciate it. This is a follow-up. And like I said, I'm not going to make a general habit of making follow-ups for every single thing. But there was so much good interaction on the Facebook page. I couldn't help it. There's so much more that, that, that I felt compelled to say. Uh, and so, again, thank you for all that interaction. Um, speaking of interaction, please don't hesitate to go on to iTunes and to give us a rating. Um, and to give us a review on there, I would appreciate that. And that would help uh, more people ultimately to hear the podcast. Um, check out our Twitter at Pleasant Podcast our uh, blog mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com and of course go to our Facebook page uh, where so much interaction takes place facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast um, go to uh, go to our sponsor ITL Coaching um, itlcoaching.com on Twitter at itlcoaching or on Facebook facebook.com slash performance. also don't forget about my wife the travel planner the travel agent she is in Disney World right now celebrating a birthday with my twin sons here uh, she can plan a vacation for you there or at the Caribbean or wherever she's going to the Bahamas for training in a couple of weeks so, uh, so by all means she is uh, well equipped to do that cruises race travel whatever it happens to be facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner MEV. Um, and of course, you can drop her an email too at Casey, that's K A C I E, Casey Travel Planner at gmail.com. Um, it's going to be a few weeks until uh, I come back to you one more time. Uh, the next time I talk to you, it's going to be after the Chicago Marathon. It's going to be after Kona by the next time I talk to you. It's going to be right around the time of Ironman Louisville. Uh, the next podcast is actually going to be a race report, and I'm going to bring in training partner and all-around good guy Patrick Ollinger, and he and I are going to talk about our experiences training for and then ultimately racing the Chicago Marathon. Uh, if you're racing Chicago, if you're racing Kona, if you're racing Ironman Chattanooga, if you're racing Berlin, uh, good luck. If you're racing Ironman North Carolina, if you're racing Ironman Louisville, and I don't talk to you before then, if you're racing the 70.3 Augusta or anything else that's coming up, over the course of the next short while before our next podcast. Best of luck, and we will be sending good thoughts your way. Thanks again for listening.